Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Miami, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 646 for release on Sunday, July 11th, 2021. On WaveScan today, more about Radio Saigon, Part 2, Canada's highest ever temperature, and our Philippine DX report. In our program two weeks back, we left the story about Radio Saigon in South Vietnam just after they pretended to be Nairam Radio at Bandung on the Indonesian island of Java. And that's where Ray Robinson picks up the sequential story of Radio Saigon in our program today. Thanks, Jeff. Three months later, in June 1942, Radio Saigon in Japanese-occupied South Vietnam was noted in the United States with an off-air program relay from Radio Tokyo in Japan. Four months later again, in October 1942, Radio Saigon began the broadcast of programs beamed specifically to Australia, often with brief messages from Australian prisoners of war. During these eras, Radio Saigon was noted frequently on its two standard frequencies in parallel, 6185 and 11780 kHz, though it was never allocated a specifically Japanese call sign, as was the case in several other countries in Asia. Three years later, on Friday evening, March the 9th, 1945, Japanese army personnel arrived at the station at 9.30pm and arrested the four staff members still on duty, two men and two women. Next day, the four prisoners were permitted to return to their individual homes, though Radio Saigon was staffed then onwards by Japanese personnel only. The last day on which messages from Australian POWs were included in their programming beam to Australia was two months later on May the 31st, 1945. In early September 1945, a few days after the end of the Pacific War, Japanese personnel handed Radio Saigon over to the Viet Minh, a political party in favour of independence for Vietnam, and the Japanese then quietly disappeared. However, the Viet Minh also absconded just as quickly. British personnel began to arrive in Saigon a few days later, still during the first week in September, and they found little more than chaos in many areas. Radio Saigon was reactivated by several of its earlier staff on Wednesday, September the 26th, 1945, and the revived station limped along with whatever equipment it could find useful. However, at 10.20am on Monday, April the 8th of the next year, 1946, a massive series of explosions at a huge ammunition dump destroyed everything in reach, including the nearby studios of Radio Saigon. The station resumed broadcasting at 6pm that same evening from a temporary studio in a private suburban home, with the use of borrowed equipment from the post office and the army. The former studio building was rebuilt, though the four-mile-distant transmitter building was not affected by those events. At that stage, Radio Saigon was on the air with three broadcast transmitters, which were located near an Annamese village at outer suburban Puteaux. 
medium wave 1050 kilohertz operated at one and a half kilowatts and short wave operated with two transmitters at 12 kilowatts each however change was on the way Half a dozen years later, two French shortwave transmitters at 25 kilowatts each and one at 5 kilowatts were installed. Originally, Radio Saigon was identified as the voice of France in the Far East, though in the mid-1950s this powerful French radio broadcasting station was taken over by the independent government of South Vietnam and Radio France Asie became Radio Diffusion du Vietnam. Radio Vietnam. The internationally recognized call sign at that stage was 3WT. The quarter-century-old colonial French radio station Radio France Asie, Radio Saigon, is now well and truly gone, and these days it's remembered only by a few of the oldest surviving radio personnel who were active in the middle of the last century. But as well as the broadcasting station in South Vietnam, there was also a communication station called Saigon Radio, which was first installed in 1924. This station was heard in Australia under the call sign FZS seven years later in August 1931. This Saigon Radio was noted on 11990 kHz with a power of 9 kilowatts and it was used for communication with other countries in Asia and with Bordeaux in the European mother country, France. In 1935, Saigon Radio was listed with three shortwave transmitters, two at 15 kilowatts, FZR and FZS, and one at 6 kilowatts, FZG. On special occasions, and when radio broadcasting station Radio Saigon wished to be heard specifically in France, a programme relay from Radio Saigon was carried by communication station Saigon Radio. Occasional programme relays of this nature were heard in both Australia and the United States, and two of the known frequencies for this purpose were 11990 and 18388 kHz. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Ray. On Tuesday, June 29th, Canada experienced the highest ever weather temperature, a sweltering 49.6 degrees centigrade, that's 121.3 Fahrenheit, at the small town of Lytton in the western province of British Columbia. The previous highest weather temperature in Canada was 45 degrees, or 113 Fahrenheit, in the province of Saskatchewan in 1937. And Ray tells us that this new 2021 record is 8 degrees higher than the previous record that was set some 84 years ago. Yes, Jeff. And the sad thing is that because of the excessively high temperatures for three days in a row at Lytton two weeks back, nearby forest fires have caused local havoc. On the Wednesday evening, Mayor Jan Polderman ordered an immediate evacuation of all 300 residents in Lytton in advance of a 50-mile-an-hour wind-blown fire coming in from the south. Next day, news reports indicated that the ravaging fire took just 15 minutes to engulf the entire town, and it destroyed literally 90% of the buildings. Massive smoke clouds from the fire at Lytton and from other nearby fires also rose up high and spread widely, so much so that their huge size was filmed from satellites. These smoke and dust-filled clouds developed their own weather patterns, and three-quarters of a million lightning strikes were registered in less than one day. 
Back around 40 years ago, the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, began to establish a nationwide network of small, low-powered, medium-wave slave relay stations in small, isolated communities. The first of these LPRTs, or low-power relay transmitters, was installed in this same western province of British Columbia. Each LPRT was installed in a local community building, such as a railway station, post office, community building, or even a commercial facility. The power rating for each LPRT station was usually 20 or 40 watts, simply enough to permit good listening locally, and they were locked in permanently to CBC programming from a large nearby centre. The audio quality from these low-powered medium-wave relay transmitters was absolutely superb. One of those early LPRT transmitters was installed towards the southern end of the town of Lytton, which runs on the eastern side of the Fraser River, and it operated under the unannounced call sign CBRE on 1080 kHz. However, over a period of time, coverage from medium-wave CBRE proved to be inadequate, even in the town of Lytton where it was installed, due to local interference, both QRN and QRM. Consequently, half a dozen years later, in 1987, the CBC installed an FM LPRT station at that same location in Lytton, under the call sign CBTY, with 183 watts on 93.1 MHz. CBTY-FM and CBRE-AM ran in parallel for a year, and then the medium-wave unit was switched off in 1988. This slave downlink FM relay station carried CBC Radio 1 programming in English from the CBC Coordinating Studios in Kamloops, British Columbia. The master control studios for Radio 1 nationwide programming are located in Toronto, and the Kamloops studios insert local programming for regional areas in British Columbia. There was also a small low-powered commercial FM station in Lytton, CIAK, which was a slave relay on 102.3 MHz with Canada-wide syndicated programming from Vancouver in British Columbia. The latest announcement from Lytton in British Columbia, Canada, is that the townspeople are beginning to plan on the rebuilding of their entire community. Jeff? Thank you very much. Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. In today's segment of Electronic Echoes, Aaron Castillo of kpcradio.com talks to Christina Collins of HamSci about the science behind shortwave radio and how citizen scientists expand our understanding every day. Christina is a Ph.D. student at Case Western Reserve University and a member of both the Case Western Ham Club and HamSci. She has authored various scientific papers for HamSci and is involved in and chaired various HamSci projects. Come along now as she talks about the vast and relatively unexplored ionosphere, its role in shortwave radio propagation, what factors affect it, and how HamSci is setting up experiments and eventually hardware that allows anybody to make their very own space weather station that can help us understand this vast ocean in the sky. Hello and welcome to the show, Christina. I'm happy to hey, have you here Hey, glad to be here. 
could you please tell me how did you get into shortwave radio? Why shortwave? Well, so I first uh, got into it my freshman year of college. Uh, I came to Case and I discovered the Case Amateur Radio Club, W8EDU, um, which has been around uh, in various forms since the 1940s. And uh, I fell in love with the, uh, with the space and with the ability to make contacts with people around the world. I particularly like QSL cards, which, as you know, is the uh, tradition of making a contact with somebody and then sending a postcard with a little bit of art on it. And um, I really liked that there was a, uh, a record of these contacts we'd made over time. I had a lot of friends in the club. And as we started, you know, developing more involvement with it, in order to keep the club going uh, and to, you know, sort of justify it as a thing that the university was doing, we decided that we wanted to have a, a greater level of curricular integration and research work. So we started exploring avenues where we could do scientific research uh, using the tools of amateur radio. And that was what led us to, uh, to join HamSci. So the joining the college was the defining moment that led you to pursue it, uh, ham radio very seriously. Yeah, I don't really have a, uh, you know, a, a spark signal, if you will, right? Like the way that sometimes birders have a spark bird. I think maybe if I did have one, it might be WWV. I have a particular memory of um, one of my friends setting up his radio and stringing a, a wire antenna between dorm buildings. And, you know, we were kind of sitting there with the headphones and the Pelican case and tuning into different shortwave stations. I was like, wow, this is really cool. You know, but uh, I know I had been interested in it before that. I think he may have set that up because he thought I'd just gotten my license. So ah. um, I didn't actually do a whole lot of operating for the first few years that I had it. Uh, but, you know, eventually I started getting into more um, making DX contacts. That was really the, the thing that I came to enjoy. I'm not much of a contester, but I really like to, uh, to develop connections with people um in far-flung places yeah that's a lot of fun to be able to talk to people who are half the world over using nothing but a radio and some antenna exactly so before we get into the world of hamsi could you please explain the basics of the ionosphere how does it reflect radio signals and what are its what do you mean by layers yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you take your technician class ham radio license, they cover the basics of this. Um, and this is what separates out uh, VHF and UHF signals from HF signals, uh, is that you have these layers of ionized particles which uh, reflect radio waves. There are three layers that we mostly pay attention to. Uh, there's the E layer, the F1 layer, and the F2 layer. There's also the D layer, uh, which we don't really look at as much um, for our work because it's usually just absorption. Um, the funny thing about the, uh, the names of the different layers, I don't know if you've ever seen the musical Cats. Uh, no. But, well, okay, so if, if you ever do, right? there's a great deal of fixation on the heavy side layer. They are to send one cat up to the heavy side layer and it's all, you know, 
I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's cogent, but that is the plot. <laughs> and uh, the Heaviside layer is the ionosphere. It was named for uh, for Oliver Heaviside, and then there was also Kennelly, who came up with it at the same time. The Basically, they figured out that they were seeing these trans-horizon uh, radio signals. And that, uh, you know, Marconi had reported this, right? That you were able to get radio signals over the horizon. And if you think of a radio signal as being like a, uh, you know, light from a flashlight or something, um, that doesn't make sense that it would be mm-hmm. refracted in that way. Uh, so they were like, okay, well, it's got to be bouncing off of something. And they kind of independently intuited that there must be this layer in place there. Well, then uh, this guy Appleton, who did a lot of early work, he had the uh, the Appleton-Hartree equation, which was developed uh, a lot by Mary Taylor, who worked under him. Um, there's a whole you know group of people who were uh, involved in kind of setting the early terminology and the early science behind this. And uh, I've recently been reading this fantastic book by uh, Chen Pan Yang called Probing the Sky with Radio Waves. Highly recommend. He goes through all of the the early history of it. But anyway, so Appleton, right, is taking these, uh, effectively it's, you know, he's he's doing radar. He's figuring out that he can send a, a radio signal and then hear it back by bouncing it off of this invisible layer in the sky. Um, and on his graph, he has E to indicate voltage. And when he figured out that there were, uh, you know, that there was other layer above it, he started calling that F. Then he figured out that there was a layer below it and started calling it D. And then he figured there was a layer between E and F, but he didn't want to redo all his notes. So he started calling the first one F2 and the second one F1. And they was like, well, I shouldn't change it now because what if there's like an A, B, and C layer and there weren't? And so now we're stuck, right, with D, F1 and F2. So if you ever wondered, you know, and hopefully I got the details right on that, but that's the general outline of it, was that this was a, uh, you know, lab notes and the, the process of discovery embedded uh, in the um, in the terminology for the layers. So when people say layers of the ionosphere, that's what they mean. Wow, what a crazy story. I had no idea that's how they were formed. <laughs> I knew they exist. I knew how they mm-hmm. had no idea, but I didn't know there was this. Yeah, you knew, you knew that that's the reason that you hear things sometimes and you don't hear things other times, right? And so if you think of it, the way I always describe it to people is it's sort of like there's this uh, this invisible ocean in the sky, right? And it's because uh, the ionosphere is what, like 90 kilometers up to like 500 kilometers up? Like it's a lot. If There's a lot of, of uh, various gases around there. And we think of our atmosphere down here in the troposphere where we live, it's very well mixed. You know, you have populations of different, uh, you know, chemicals and aerosols and things, but it's all pretty homogeneous. And in the ionosphere, you don't have that. You have these populations of ions that are quite separate from one another. Um, And they're affected by, uh, you know, the space weather above it and by the terrestrial weather below it. So you can use the ionosphere in some degree to sort of sense these things. You can correlate things that you see in the ionosphere with stuff that's happening above and below. But uh, ultimately, we don't really have a whole lot of sensors pointing at the ionosphere. And so by having ham radio operators do these Doppler measurements, which is my focus, um, or by you know setting up personal space weather stations uh, over the next few years, it's the big project in HamSci, um, 
I like to think of that as sort of putting buoys on this ocean and trying to figure out what it's doing on that basis. Um, because otherwise, you know, every time you have a, a shortwave station and people develop a very good intuitive understanding of this, right? Like if you ever made a hand, uh, a ham contact to somebody who's very far away and you're watching the sun go down and you know that your propagation path is going to disappear, right? Um, like as soon as the sun goes down, that's, you know, that that's the intuitive understanding of space weather that ham radio operators develop. Uh, so it's really rewarding to spend some time connecting up hams and space scientists and get some of that kind of tribal knowledge from the community of hams and shortwave listeners integrated in with trying to figure out what the bottom side ionosphere is doing. So we're trying to, uh, no, what you're trying to do is get the hams to to come together and use their knowledge to help better explore the space weather. So mm-hmm. then how does how does a, someone set up their own station? What does it take? Just your normal transmitter or is there something else one needs? Uh, if you want to spend a little time doing a space weather experiment of your own, all you need is a ham radio setup like you already have or a shortwave listening setup like you already have. If you go to um, hamsci.org, that's H-A-M-S-C-I.org, slash Doppler dash instructions. Um, that will give you the, uh, there's sort of a a write-up, it's still kind of in progress, but it shows you how to make sort of the basic set of measurements, which is to listen to a time standard station like WWV, and you're listening for a shift in frequency of the carrier. So in this case, the way to think of the ionosphere is, you know, you've kind of got this ceiling, right, that's moving up and down, and your radio waves are bouncing off that ceiling. And you can think of it as a triangle that goes from the beacon station up to the sky, down again to you. And that ceiling will move up during the nighttime, and it will move down uh, during the daytime. So there's a particularly pronounced shift when the... uh, the night turns into day when you have the sunrise, you'll see a very specific jump. When you take the frequency measurement, right, from WWV, when that signal leaves the station, it is at 10.00000 megahertz, right? Like lots of sig figs. I think it's uh, to within one part in 10 to the 12th, I want to say, so I will. Um, and it's, uh, it's a very precise frequency. But when it gets to you, it has changed. And the reason it's changed is the same reason that, you know, when you hear a, a train horn go by, it's, you know, it's a Doppler effect. So uh, remember I said the ceiling goes up at night, right? Uh, and those wave fronts get stretched out. It's the same as a red shift. So the frequency you're receiving won't be 10.00000. It'll be 9.99999 because of that change. That was Christine Collins of Case Western Reserve University, speaking with Aaron Castillo, host of the program Electronic Echoes on kpcradio.com in Los Angeles. You can learn more about HamSci at www.hamsci.org. And next on WaveScan today, it's Henry Mathai and his Philippine DX report. Hello, everyone, to our dear shortwave listeners. Wherever you are, welcome to the July 11th edition of the Philippine DX. This is port number 172. I'm Henry Omada in Bacolod City, Negros of Central Philippines. Glad to be back and thank you for 
listening. I would like to thank our DXR friends for sending the reception report. Most recently, Mr. Jose Jacob in Hyderabad, India, Mr. Anatoly Klefov in Moscow, Russia, Mr. Jan Sakari Alvarez in Dasmarinas, Cavite, here in the Philippines, and Mr. Richard Lemke in Alberta, Canada. To all of you, thank you very much. Reception lags for June 2021. June 6, Radio Thailand World Service on 9390 in English, Pramodan Tani. At 14.05, SIO 454, June 6, New Life Station, KNLS, on 9695 in English, from Anchor Point, at 030, SIO 434. June 6, NSK Radio Japan, on 15.280 in Japanese, from Yamata, at 10.25, SIO 333. June 6, Radio Taiwan International, on 11.915 in addition, from Tainan, at 10.19, SIO 444. June 6, KBS World Radio 9570 in Korean, Pram Jim J at 0841 SAO 333. June 6, China Radio International on 12070 in Filipino, Pram Shan at 1150 SAO 444. June 12, Trans World Radio TWR on 11965 in English, Pram Aganya Guam at 1105 SAO 555. June 22, Voice of Korea. On 11.735 in English, from Kujang at 10.40, SAO 555. June 27, Adventist World Radio on 17.520 in Bicolano, from Agat Guam at 10.52, SAO 444. June 27, World Harvest Radio on 11.910 in English, from Palau at 11.30, SAO 434. June 27, Radio Taiwan International on 12.100. In Indonesia, from Kaohsiung at 1040 SIO 555. And June 27, China Radio International 11955. In Filipino, from Kunming at 1147 SIO 555. Send us your comments, suggestions, reception lags, and information to PilipinasDX at Yahoo.com. That's P I L I P I N S D X for PilipinasDX at Yahoo. This has been Henry Umaday for Wavescan in Bacolod City, Negros, Occidental, Central, Philippines, Sema Buhay, at maraming salamat. Thank you, Henry. And thanks for listening to Wavescan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio, researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week, return to Bougainville Island, our ancient DX report for 1924, Part 2, and our Bangladesh DX report. Several QSL cards are available for this program. Send your AWR and KSDA reception reports for WaveScan to the AWR address in Bangkok, Thailand. Stand by for that. And also to the station your radio is tuned to, WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa, or to IRRS Italy or to the AWR relay stations that carry WaveScan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air here in WaveScan. They will also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. The email address for AWR QSLs is qsl at awr.org. The postal address for AWR QSLs is Adventist World Radio. P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, that's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. 
Again, that's Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanon, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. And the email address for other correspondence to Wavescan, not reception reports, is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI in Miami. Till next week, good listening, everyone. (laughs) 